Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Dr. Katherine Chang. Dr. Katherine Chang is a board-certified facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgeon and craniofacial specialist, and she takes an uncommon approach to cosmetic surgery, combining artistry with technical expertise to produce the most natural, harmonious results. In her private practice at Privy Beverly Hills, Dr. Chang describes her work as surgery that doesn't look surgical. She hides incisions to make them undetectable to the naked eye. She's a powerful female surgeon with an incredible roster of clients in an industry filled with men. In March 2023, Dr. Chang launched Naked Beauty MD with the debut product, Damask Rose Revitalizing Eye Masks, developed from her patient's need for a post-procedure regimen that would help heal the skin effectively. Since launch, the eye masks have become a beauty authority favorite, being used by names such as Hung Van Gogh while working with Cara Delevingne during the 2023 Oscars. Dr. Chang earned degrees from Columbia University, the University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard Medical School. She's also a student of art history, a concert pianist who performed at Carnegie Hall, and a competitive tennis player. A lot going on. I love it. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Dr. Katherine Chang. Hello. How are you doing, Katherine? Hi. Hi, Erica. Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with you. Likewise, likewise. And I'm so, I want to say like, I'm so proud of us. We're both doing this on like a Friday after a long week. <laughs> yes. We are just on the grind. The last episode I recorded was on a Saturday and I'm just like, wow, wow we are just, we are just doing what we got to do to make this happen. You are much busier than I, but I'm appreciating that you're here late on a Friday. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your dedication as well. <laughs> Love it. So before we get into it, I do like to start every show with a light and fun question. Okay. What is something new that you learned in this past week? Something new that I learned? That is a good question. So I would say, well, I'm trying to think back now. I just got back from Colombia, actually, the country, which is the first time I've been there. Wow. I learned that actually at this time of year, it is incredibly hot and humid. And even if the forecast says it's chilly and rainy, it's actually hot and humid. <laughs> so you do definitely have to pack light and breezy clothing. It's so funny. You learn <laughs> that weather is not always right. And sometimes it happens at the most inopportune times. <laughs> That's right. That is an important lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So not entirely plastic surgery related, but... No, I love it. The, the point of the question is to be whatever you want. Why did you go to Colombia? That's amazing. Yeah, it was actually great. It was um, for the South American Plastic Surgery Society meeting, which is their biggest plastic surgery conference where plastic surgeons from mostly South America, but also Europe and all over the world join. Um, and I was giving a lecture on facelifting, facial rejuvenation, um, and then was invited to also um, do a live surgery in front of like 850 plastic surgeons. And so 
That was great. I mean, it was an interesting experience. It's different when you operate in front of people who are critically evaluating you, learning from you, and it's an active interaction. So, you know, they're asking questions about what you're doing, why you're doing it. And it's a really great time. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I would love to do some work trips in Colombia. That sounds like not a, bad, <laughs> not a bad place. What is that main difference between doing it live and mm-hmm. doing it normally? I mean, I would imagine the pressure of doing it in front of your peers is a lot. Like my, my mom is actually a surgeon as well. And she oh, talks okay. about it's, you know, even giving lectures like to your peers, mm-hmm. it's just different than to the general public, you know, like a YouTube video or for you, you do a lot of content like most people aren't really as educated as you are. You're kind of top 1%, but when you're amongst other plastic surgeons, like a lot of them know their stuff. So I'm so yeah. curious, like, what is that like, that difference? For sure. So you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, when you're presenting to the public or your patients, it's definitely very different than presenting to a group of surgeons who are educated similarly to you and who have you know, a very solid knowledge base. And so I think it's just um, being you know, very clear with your thought process, I think has to be very crystal clear and kind of when you're explaining what you're doing, why you're doing it, being you know, much more technical, I would say, is another difference where I don't really go into a lot of you know, nitty gritty anatomy on my Instagram or TikTok videos, just because oftentimes it's just too much um, for the general public and, and not very informative for them, you know, to make a decision about, you know, the topic. So I think there's also pressure on, you know, making sure you look good while you're doing it, making sure it looks smooth, you know, because we all want to, you know, present well in front of our colleagues and peers. Um, but it was really great. I mean, it was also um, a full camera crew there. So filming some multiple um, wow. cameramen and, mm-hmm. And then also other surgeons in the room watching. So it's definitely a very crowded space. And I think the other difference would be it's not with your typical team. So typically when I operate, I like to have a very specific and consistent team because that allows you to be um, much more uh, cohesive as a unit. You're um, definitely more efficient with time. And so that was a little different too. And then there was a language barrier where, you know, Spanish, I don't speak medical Spanish as fluently as English, but a good thing my my surgical tech here actually speaks Spanish. And I've always just enjoyed speaking to her in Spanish. So I was able to utilize some of that. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for walking us through all that. That's so interesting. And I think uh, it's actually a good point too. You said medical Spanish, because it's not like conversational Spanish that a lot of people kind of know, like, Where's the restroom? What are you drinking? It's really like very technical, like you said. Right. I'm so curious too, who was the lucky person that was chosen for the live surgery? Like I find that kind of interesting too. Like it's obviously not like donating your body to science, but you're sort of like willing to be like on display. And I think plastic surgery has this reputation of maybe being a little bit, you know, like behind closed doors. Like you don't always want everyone to know that you're doing the facelift or the reconstruction of some kind. So I'm so curious, like, was this one of your patients that you were like, we'll fly you out? Was this a local person in Colombia? Like, who was that person? It was a local person in uh, Colombia who was very open and I'm happy to kind of share her experience and be a patient to be filmed. But I will say, you know, different countries have different views on plastic surgery and, you know, how open people are about the experience. And I would say definitely in other countries, I've seen that a lot of people are much more open than I would say I see in the United States. 
That's so interesting. What countries would you say, like maybe we can like even rank it like one to 10, like what countries are 10 super open, they're, they're totally fine to talk about it. They actually will mention it openly. One, maybe more like quiet, like where does US fall? Where, where are other countries falling on that? Because I, I find that so interesting. We don't think about that enough in America. We just know our, usually our own culture, unless we come from a family of immigrants and we've been exposed to that. So I'm so curious. Yeah. I mean, I would say that in South America, Asia, I think people are definitely much more open about the experience. Um, So, you know, they are at one in terms of, or 10 being open. I think the U.S. falls around, you know, three to five. You know, I think Mm -hmm. we're definitely still an industry that, um, in a country that is private and um, definitely likes to keep our cards close to heart. But I definitely do think with the rise of social media and plastic surgery that a lot of people are, especially uh, younger patients, are definitely much more open, which I think is is really nice. Yeah. I think it's just such a personal thing, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's each their own. You said private and then it made me think of your business name, Privy. Does, what, what is the, we'll get into obviously you starting and all that, but I'm so curious, is there a connection there like with the name? What does Privy mean? Yeah, so privé is a French word, and um, it's exactly kind of what you said in terms of private and secret, but not in a judgmental way of secret, but just that, you know, I am very tight-lipped and I'm very good at, you know, maintaining my patients' kind of personal matters and if they want to be private about that. And I think a lot of people often, for those who do want to be more have their identity concealed, I think it's always, you know, kind of nerve-wracking going into an office or worried about being seen or, you know, are my photos going to appear somewhere or, you know, are people going to know? So that's kind of how it came about because I myself am a private person as well. So I totally understand and recognize how others feel going through the process. Totally. And especially in Beverly Hills. I mean, you're like in the heart of people that are going to, there's, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of normal everyday clients too, but there's going to be a lot of folks that, you know, they just don't want that getting out and they want the back door entry, you know, they don't want anyone knowing they've been there. So I understand that's like a core value of you all. And then speaking of you being private, you post a lot of content and have done an amazing job with brand building, which we'll get into, but you're very private. I'm so curious, like, how do you think about your relationship to privacy? Are there certain things that you are a lot more protective over, a lot more certain things you're more open about? When I say that as someone who I too, I mean, I obviously have this podcast. I have, I post on social media as well. Like I have a little bit more of like a personal brand, but I think of myself as kind of private, which is weird. People are like, what? And there's certain things I just kind of keep to myself. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I totally understand how you feel um, because being a private person, but also, you know, for you having a podcast and for me with social media, I think it's a great way for me to interact with patients in in an educational way. And so I will say it was definitely a switch for me when I moved to LA and social media was, I think is much more um, a part of plastic surgery in LA compared to, I would say the East Coast, the Midwest. And so initially with my social media, I only posted before and afters and very kind of technical things. And then I had some friends and or patients that really suggest that they want to see a little bit more about me. And that was, I will say, very uncomfortable for me because I didn't like posting a lot of either photos of myself or any, you know, personal things. Um, So I've expanded a little bit more in that sense. But I do try to keep a lot of the content educational and patient focused and things that I think my patients would find interesting. So not so much about me, but, you know, more about my patients. 
Yeah, but you need your face in it. Like you need like, <laughs> that's the thing too that's so hard. And I I totally hear you. You also can't really have a hugely successful business, especially in a space like yours where people are really coming for you. Like you are the product, you are the service without having your face. It's not like you sell t-shirts and no one really cares who the founder Mm -hmm. is and they just want the shirt. Like you and your technique, that's the thing they're coming for. So it just gets very tricky, like what that line is. But it sounds like you're getting more comfortable with time and now it feels like it's in a better spot. Is that right? Yeah, I would say definitely a better spot. And I think that with initially with social media, you kind of feel like everything has to be perfect, right? The what you're wearing, how your hair is, you know, but now it's kind of gotten to the point where I never look camera ready, especially if I'm filming after, you know, being in an operating room and my hair is up in a bun or um, I constantly still wear a mask actually to see patients since I do a lot of um, facial procedures and facial surgery and really up in patient spaces. So I still wear a mask every day when I'm examining patients. So I never feel camera ready, but but now I'm, I'm more comfortable with it. That's the secret. It just takes time. <laughs> You know, it just takes time. Okay, well, let's get into, I could keep asking you all these questions, but I want to (laughs) go chronologically, learn all about your story. So maybe let's start with childhood. Did you always want to be a doctor? What did your family do? Medicine is such an interesting path. I'll give you like a quick context on me. Every single person in my family is in medicine. And I don't say that lightly. Like it's the mom, dad, sister, brother-in-law, aunt, uncle, And I'm obviously not like I'm in business, but so I know I'm very familiar with what it means to want to do medicine. Usually you want to do that from a very young age and you kind of have to decide, especially in America, like by 18 for the most part. So walk me through where your head was at growing up, when you decided you want to be a doctor, all that stuff. I actually, I didn't grow up dreaming about being a doctor, but I will say I absolutely love what I do. And I'm super happy I landed where I am. But my there's a lot of doctors similarly to you in the family. So my uncle's a neurosurgeon. My grandpa was a primary care physician in a rural area. My aunt was a radiation oncologist. My brother is an orthopedic surgeon. Um, he actually always wanted to be a history teacher. So we were all really surprised <laughs> he kind of flipped into medical school. Wait, you got to say more about that. I got to hear what, what happened there. Yeah. I mean, he was always into history. He would constantly be reading um, history books or just um, like battlefield you know, <laughs> <laughs> strategies. He can list every single war uh, by date and like specific battles that were fought that changed, you know, the war. And he was going to be a history teacher. And we all thought he was going to be. It. And then one day he calls us and he's two years older than me. I was still in high school and he's like, you know, I think I'm going to take the MCAT and apply for medical school. And we were just kind of blown away. We actually don't know exactly what caused that shift, but um, he's now an orthopedic surgeon uh, in Washington, D.C. and loves it. So he's happy. So, does he yeah, still love history and that's more of like a hobby and he just like reads up on it all the time? Yeah, he still does. Yeah. Wild. You know, I think that happens a lot in society because if we take a step back, like the average salary of a history teacher and the average salary of an orthopedic surgeon are <laughs> usually different, right? Not always. Yes, usually they're a little different. Usually a little different. And so it's interesting that like as a society, maybe people were born to do something or they have a strong passion for something. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's also like a practicality piece to a lot of things in career, which is like right. you want to have a certain kind of life and it mm-hmm. is harder to maybe make that salary if you study a certain thing. So do you think that that was part of it? Or do you think he literally just woke up one day and was like, 
I love medicine or I want to do orthopedic surgery. Like, what do you think it was? I mean, I don't really think it was the compensation component. I think he really just, um, he loves sports. So he's currently a sports, you know, orthopedic surgeon um, that specializes in, you know, athletes and athlete injuries. I think just kind of similarly to me, having had the influence of a lot of family members in medicine, I'm really seeing how you can make a difference in someone's life. I think it, it probably just infiltrated um, his brain as he was trying to figure out, like you said, we do have to make that decision pretty early, you know, because you have to take the MCAT, you have to get all your um, prerequisites done in order to apply to medical school. So I think he probably made that jump and thought if he hated it, he could do go back and, and study history. He already knows all the history. He doesn't have to study it. He can just <laughs> yeah, take exactly. him a job. That's He's trying to like, get through med school and like get a full on history job because he knows it all. Yeah, he probably could still do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think I feel this way with movies a little bit. Like I love them, but I would never like do that for my career. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get confused with the things that are actually just our passions and our hobbies and what right. we like to read and what movies we like to see. That doesn't necessarily mean that has to be our career. So is there something other than plastic surgery that you maybe thought, oh, I could do that or, oh, I'm really good at this that maybe you either lost interest in or it's just a hobby now? I'm curious if anything comes to mind. Actually, I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. So that was kind of my goal. That's what all my research in medical school was, was um, with uh, heart transplants and heart rhythms. And I did my first transplant run at the age of 21, um, 22, um, for a heart, heart and lung harvest. And I loved it. That's definitely something I still love and um, really enjoy. But um, there was a kind of a transition where the technical aspect is something I really enjoyed as well as the patient care. But in terms of, you know, being a female wanting to have a family in the future, I think it'd be very difficult to be a CT surgeon um, while also being able to care, you know, for your family. And so plastic surgery, um, I kind of stumbled upon actually during one of my rotations where I was actually on an ENT rotation, so otolaryngology, also known as uh, ears, nose, and throat. And during that rotation, there was a patient who had a tumor in the, in the jaw, and the whole jaw needed to be removed. And so that obviously would leave no lower, you know, lower part of the face. And I was thinking, wow, what is this patient going to do? And in the middle of the operation, in walks two plastic surgeons, they harvest uh, bone from the lower leg, and they harvest with it the vascular supply. Um, this is known as a microvascular free flap transfer. Um, they then cut the bone into different you know shapes, plate it together into the shape of a mandible, and then reconnect the blood supply to the neck. And I was like, that's just incredible. And so they essentially designed a jaw out of the lower leg um, to recreate an aesthetic appearing face which then could allow for dental implants into the, the lower leg bone. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? You can't predict these things. It's like, yeah. sometimes you wonder too, I don't know if you feel this way, but if you hadn't have been in that room that day and mm-hmm. hadn't seen that one surgery that really you thought was cool, like it, maybe it was just more of a boring surgery. Like it was just not that interesting. Plastics didn't come in. Do you think that you still would have found this or what do you, how do you think about that? Actually, um, I don't because I will say plastic surgery is such an interesting niche and subspecialized surgical specialty that most people, but including doctors don't really know what plastic surgeons do. And so as a med student and I was at um, Columbia in New York city, I thought plastic surgery only consisted of breast augmentation and butt augmentations and that it was a very superficial field. 
Um, little did I know that plastic surgeons are truly the last general surgeon left because plastic surgeons operate head to toe. We operate from you know skin deep to bones. We train in hand um, surgery. So we plate fractures, we take hand call, we do forearm surgery, we do nerve surgery, as well as um, microvascular anastomosis, which is what I just kind of... Uh, briefly summarized with the, the lower leg reconstruction. And so we really operate on all facets of the body. And um, plastic surgeons are some of the original true general surgeons. And general surgery has now really become very divided into, or subspecialized, I would say, into vascular or the gut surgery or you know intestinal surgery. It's very specific now. And I didn't know plastic surgeons did this. You know, I don't, I think most people don't know that the majority of our training in residency, which is one of the longest training programs, is mostly in reconstructive surgery. So the aesthetic component is actually a very small part of our training. And when I was in that case, I was kind of floored and blown away by what plastic surgeons can do. And plastic surgeons also, we work a lot with other surgical specialties, and we provide a lot of what's called soft tissue closure. So we work a lot with neurosurgeons. So if um, let's say there's a tumor resection and they can't, they lose the bone or the skull. Uh, we help to design, you know, a new skull flap covering, or we help to provide soft tissue where we take tissue from the abdomen, the leg, and we put it on the the scalp to provide coverage for the brain. And so it's such an interesting specialty with a lot of nuances that people don't know that plastic surgeons do. And so that's something I was really surprised by when I was in medical school and and really lucky to have been in that case. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been, you know, a plastic surgeon. Thank you for sharing all that. And how lucky are we, too, that you now post educational content so people know about the (laughs) diversity of the plastic surgery field. Like, I think, to your point, it's not even just about med students knowing. It's also about everyday people knowing. Like, these are what your doctors do. This is what your friend who says that they're a plastic surgeon is actually doing. And right. this, this is the difference between all the different types of surgery. Right. I'm so curious, and I'm I'm being very specific about this because actually, you're, you're this is actually weird timing. We're doing this interview today because my twin sister is taking her step two boards today. Oh my god! Congratulations! And she wants to go into plastic surgery. I love that. Where is she located? She's in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm actually, you know okay. what? It's so funny. I can't believe it's happening today. But I'm wearing, I'm in her honor. It's a University of Medicine Phoenix twin sister <laughs> sweatshirt. How cute. I love that. I'm like manifesting all the good energy for her. But anyway, so I'm asking some kind of specific questions if you'll indulge okay. me because she's yeah. my twin. I love that. And so plastic surgery is obviously very difficult to get into. And you talked about, I've never heard anyone say it this way, which I think is interesting, that plastic surgery is like the last general surgeon. What do you think is now the the general surgery residency and the general surgery thing? How is that different than you said kind of like the last plastic surgery? Obviously, I know plastics is a whole different field, but Mm -hmm. like when you think about the general surgery route, how do you think of it as being differentiated from the plastic surgery route? Yeah, well, it's very different now. So general surgery really focuses more on abdominal surgery now. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are now subspecializing general surgery earlier, where it used to be that you had to complete general surgery to then do vascular surgery or cardiothoracic surgery or gallbladder or endoscopic surgery. And now a lot of these you know, subspecialties of general surgery now have direct paths. 
Um, so for instance, you can now match into vascular surgery directly. I mean, you'll still have a, a component of general surgery training, but now, you know, surgeons are becoming so hyper-specialized that the training is too. And there's, you know, we have so much knowledge and so much information now that it's really hard to learn, you know, both general surgery, plus if you decide to hyper-specialize, that residencies are now gearing their training um, to be very um, specific. Mm, got it. Okay. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's so interesting yeah. to hear you talk about it because I, I hear it often from the med school perspective, but not always from the practitioner perspective, which is very refreshing. And then, so you so you went to Columbia for undergrad, you did the mm -hmm. pre-med thing. You then, from what I have here, you did Columbia for med school and then you did Harvard yeah. for residency, right? I did Penn, UPenn for UPenn. Um, oh, residency and then wrong. Harvard for my uh, craniofacial fellowship where I did additional training to specialize in, um, this specifically was uh, facial reconstruction and facial aesthetics, which is something I find incredibly interesting. And so there's a lot of trauma, which is something I still, you know, to this day love to do and still do. So even though I do a lot of aesthetic procedures and elective procedures, I still take trauma call. So if someone gets into an accident and um, hits their forehead on the dashboard and they have a, a broken bone, um, they would call me. Wow. Okay. How did you decide that area of plastic surgery? Because like we just talked about, it's so diverse mm -hmm. and there's so many interesting fields. The unfortunate, unfortunate part of medicine, like you said, is you just get so, so narrow. How did you decide that? And how did you decide yeah. that you also wanted to have your own practice? Because I think that's that's something also similar to the, our conversation earlier about salary. Like that's a consideration. Not all forms of plastic surgery, I would imagine, you can open your own practice, right? Like I feel like there are some some types of surgery just more generally that have very expensive machines and it's better mm -hmm. to work for some big hospital. So I'm sure that maybe played a factor too. I'd love to hear more about like that decision. You know, actually I would say I probably wasn't as practical like that when I was making my decision. It was really just a thought of, you know, what interests me and what would I enjoy doing for the rest of my life. And that was a really hard decision to make. I mean, and your sister's going to go through this too, because you really have to, especially if you decide to do fellowship, you do have to specialize and declare your specialty early. And so I was actually going to do a microsurgery fellowship because I really loved the reconstruction aspect and the reconstructive aspect of plastic surgery. Um, but what really interested me and, you know, ever since I was young was just the face both in reconstruction of the face as well as the aesthetic component. And, you know, I think probably some of that stemmed from, you know, my mom as well, because my mom is very detail-oriented in how she does things and sees things. And I don't even know how it came up, but I always remember this. We were, I think, driving to the, driving either to the mall or to dinner somewhere. And she's like, you know, isn't it so interesting that someone can have really beautiful eyes, a really beautiful nose, and lips, but when you put it together, it doesn't look as beautiful, you know, but if you segment it out, it does. And I, I always remember that conversation because, and that probably happened when I was eight, nine years old. And then I would go around looking at people and be like, oh my God, like she's so right. Like, or like, you know, this person who, you know, if you just separated out their eyes, you know, it might not be as attractive as this person, but then overall, you know, for some reason, the, the features put together are more attractive. And I always just kind of found that interesting. She planted that seed that like you yeah. kind of always just looked at faces. And so right. you had a fascination with that ever since. Yeah. And so it's something that I think I subconsciously have been doing for many decades of my life. 
And then additionally, one of my best friends, she's this uh, beautiful artist. And she actually, uh, for Christmas, gave me this book by, I think it was by Kevin O'Klon. It was like the main kind of beauty makeup artist's uh, book at the time. And I found that interesting because it would say, oh, you know, if you're for your eyebrow, you know, you want it to be arched at the three quarter line. If you draw a line from the center of the lip along the outside of the iris um, and up, that's where the arch of the brow should be. Or that, you know, the, the brow should start at the inner corner in line with the inner canthus or known as the medial canthus, which is the most inner part of the eye. And so all these things, you know, even with the makeup book and seeing, and this was a phenomenal book about how he used makeup to accentuate beauty and accentuate different features of the face. It's interesting because there's a strong parallel with what I do and when I examine a face. So for instance, there's been, so a lot of people contour the face, right? So that means they put dark shadows, you know, underneath the cheekbone. And a way to simulate that with plastic surgery is doing something called buccal fat resection. And so buccal fat removal, which it had kind of a a bad name in the press, (laughs) um, maybe six months ago or so, where people were really overdoing it. Um, but that's essentially to create those shadows in the face or like when you put highlighter on the cheekbone, like making sure this is the most convex portion of the cheekbone. That's similar to when we add filler in certain areas to highlight the cheek or, you know, with fat grafting or with me, when I surgically do a facelift, you know, I will lift and raise the soft tissue in certain areas that I want to highlight the face, you know, and if I think someone needs a little, um, uh, fat resection in certain areas, I'll do that too. So it's like sculpting the face with plastic surgery, but similarly, you know, in line with someone who has a beautiful artistic aesthetic with makeup. Yeah, everything you're saying, it makes perfect sense. I think of beauty as pretty, sub- and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I almost think of beauty as subjective. Like, you know, everyone, it's in the eye of the beholder and you fall in love with someone and they're more beautiful. But in reality, beauty is a bit mathematical. Like kind of like what you're saying, yeah. like it's three quarters here and it's line here and symmetric here and it's kind of interesting. Like it's actually very formulaic, especially when it comes to like makeup and plastic surgery. Like there are kind of rules for it, right? Yeah. I think that's a really great point that you bring up where there are rules. You know, we talk about horizontal thirds, vertical fifths, uh, horizontal thirds, meaning if you divide the face into thirds from the forehead to the brow, brow to the base of the nose, base of the nose to the chin, it should all be about a third. And vertical fifths is when you divide the, the face into fifths. And what you know mathematically we found is that those faces that tend to appear more attractive fall within these general what we call golden ratios but what's interesting about a face is that you don't necessarily have to fall in those ratios in order to have an attractive face and that's also something i find very interesting too and for instance we look at something called the canthal tilt so that means the angle of the eye from the inner to the outer corner And the majority of, um, you know, what people consider attractive eyelids are something called a positive tilt where the eye goes like this, you know, from the inner to outer. But at the same time, there's, and I'll have patients bring in um, celebrity photos where, you know, they're incredibly beautiful and they'll say, oh, you know, look at their eye shape and it's actually a negative vector. So even though that might not be considered, you know, in the equation, beautiful, it's really beautiful on that person. And so that's why, you know, I agree with you. Beauty definitely is subjective. There are objective components where you can maybe maximize certain areas. But I also think that's where the artistry component of what I do comes in. And that's why if, let's say, I were to do 
a facelift and on one side and someone else were to do a facelift on the other side, and we could both be doing the exact same technique, the outcome will be different. And the reason being, you know, the direction of vector of the pull, how tight am I tying the knot? There's also multiple directions. So which way are you placing the soft tissue? And I think those are all, you know, artistic decisions that are made, you know, intra-op by the, by the surgeon. And so it is really important when you are seeking out a plastic surgeon, you just make sure that your aesthetic is in line with your surgeon's aesthetic. Because if you don't like your surgeon's results, you know, chances are you're not going to like your results. Or if you don't like how your surgeon looks, and if your surgeon or injector, for instance, looks overfilled, overdone, you know, chances are, or you look at the staff, you know, if the staff looks overdone, I think there's a high chance that you're going to look overdone. And so those are kind of little tips that I always um, recommend to friends and family members if they're not, you know, around the area and they're trying to find somebody, what to look for. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's true too, like a lot of surgery is so internal, like how you stitch someone up and how someone else stitches someone up. We, I'm not going to know. I'm not going to see it. As long yeah. as there's no bleeding, we're good. But it <laughs> yeah. does. It's like it matters a lot more, like you said, because of the artistry. Um, totally. Were you were you really creative as a kid? Like, I'm so curious. I And I, I say this because my sister used to make clothes. She's always oh, very good at painting. Cool. And she just has always been very like, I would joke, like if I ever needed someone to stitch me up, she's the person that I know would make it pretty. You know, she loves mm-hmm. like interior design and she's just, she's herself, I'm biased, but very beautiful, always put together, great clothes. Mm-hmm. And I, yep. I don't know, maybe this is just the stereotype of like plastic surgeons again, but I think of it as, like you said, there's this artistry, you're very particular. Were you that way as a kid, maybe with other things? Obviously, you're not doing surgery at five, but <laughs> were there other things? Yeah, I mean... I would say my parents and my brother would say I was very particular as a child. You know, certain things had to be in certain places. You know, I certain foods had to, you know, not touch. Um, I have clearly outgrown that, but um, definitely, you know, my mom went to my brother's older. And if they were picking me up after school, my mom said she would drive to the school. My brother would rush over and... Uh, he was five at the time I was three and I was like picking up his lunchbox and his jacket it's like oh you forgot this and my mom just like laughing because you know my brother just throws everything down and I'm like you know the younger child picking everything up so I I think yes I was kind of very always detail oriented you know if somebody could uh someone in the household couldn't find something they always asked me because I would remember exactly where it was and I'm also know exactly where things were placed in terms of the artistic component I definitely use a lot of, you know, the, that kind of side of the brain where I was a concert pianist. So I did a lot of musical um, activity. I loved fashion as well and makeup. I love sculpting actually more than I liked painting. I like painting, but I would say I was not as good of a painter as I am a sculptor. But I think that kind of plays into what I do today too, because a lot of what I do feels like sculpting in a more permanent way, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's someone's face, uh, not a piece of art. The concert pianist thing, you said that. And I was like, oh my gosh, of course. When did you, and you played at Carnegie Hall. I mean, like, that's incredible. What was that like? Um, that was actually pretty terrifying. Um, I'm not a big, similarly to with social media, I don't love, you know, having a lot of eyes on me. And so I was, I remember being very nervous about it. And I remember afterwards my mom being like, you know, that really wasn't your best performance. And I was like, ah, that's probably true. (laughs) So that was kind of my first experience. I played there twice. I think the second time was a little better, but, but my first time, you know, it was, 
it was probably not my best performance. Um, I started playing when I was uh, five, but I don't play as much now, which I kind of wish I did, but there's only so much time in the day. So You got to be gentle on yourself. You're doing a lot. <laughs> You're saving lives. Wait, quick note on the mom comment. <laughs> That's an interesting comment after a kid performs. Was it, yeah. I, I don't know if you, how much you want to go into that, but like, was she, it sounds like she was maybe a little critical a little, am I allowed to say that, you know, yeah, and do you think you know, that that contributed to being, I mean, your brother's an orthopedic surgeon, you're a very successful plastic surgeon, you went to amazing, amazing schools. Do you feel like that kind of influenced the, there's always more to do, I always need to achieve? You know, I think partially that's just me in general because my brother doesn't have that as much as I do. But I think definitely there's, you know, a little bit of you can always do a better job. And that's kind of how I was raised and trying to just never compete with anybody but myself, though. And so trying to make sure I just always perform my best. But I think it's been kind of great for me because I take that, you know, to work with me and with my patients every day where, you know, I always do the best job I can do for my patient. Um, and I, I'm often harder critically in terms of my result, harder on my result and more critical of my result than my patients are. And so I'm always trying to make everything each time, each surgery I do, each procedure that I do um, just better and better. I love it. Well, I'm sure your patients are very grateful that you do work so <laughs> hard and you don't do a botched job. Yeah. Before we wrap, I did want to ask you just about your, your brand, Naked Beauty. Tell me about these eye masks and why you wanted yes. to go into, you're obviously a businesswoman. I think of in my head in two obvious ways. You have your private practice and you have your social media, which is like you as a brand. But then you now have this like third piece, which is eye masks. Like why start that? Why mm -hmm. add another business? Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about that piece. Yeah. So that was almost born out of necessity. So in terms of eye masks. I have been using eye masks since I was eight. Um, it's something that in Asia I grew up using. And when I was in the States, I could never find a good eye mask. And I also, uh, to take a step back regarding just because the Naked Beauty is going to expand into more product lines and skincare lines, I was kind of annoyed with the skincare industry where I felt like a lot of brands really took advantage of the consumers and I felt like I was one of them. And being somebody who, although now I'm highly educated in the skincare space and ingredients, you know, when I was younger, I was not. And I felt like I was always spending so much money on things that didn't work. And a lot of it was marketing. And, you know, I really wanted to create a line, which is almost an, essentially an extension of the practice and experience for patients who don't live in California or who can't, you know, come in to see me to also be able to experience that, to have high quality products that work. And so that was kind of the thought process behind creating a skincare line. And the reason I uh, chose masks first are that being in my position, which is very interesting, which is where I have a broad spectrum of patients from three week old patient to, you know, a hundred year old patient, you kind of see what happens to the skin with time. You see how the face changes, how it ages, um, as opposed to you know, other fields I might just see and deal with the skin. I really get to deal with all aspects from the bone, uh, bony loss, soft tissue, fat loss, to skin loss. And so what I found is a lot of patients coming in saying you know, the eyes were the first area of aging that they were seeing. So a lot of my 20-some-year-old patients 
I would say that's their main concern. And so I wanted to create a product that really addressed that area. And so the under eyes and the crow's feet are thinner. The skin around those areas are thinner than the rest of your face. And so that is why most people start to see aging there first. I love eye masks and um, I have tried every single eye mask out there on the market. And I really want to create something that would kind of blow it all away. That's something that is effective. It works. It um, has a cooling agent in there. So a lot of masks require refrigeration in order to have a cooling effect, but there's actually a cooling effect in the mask. So they don't have to be refrigerated because I myself never have the time to remember to put in the refrigerator and then when I need it, you know, it's, it's not cold. Um, so these are really interesting in that way where they give you that cooling effect without refrigeration. And they also have caffeine in there to help with under eye puffiness. And then it's loaded with antioxidants. So there's vitamin C, ferulic acid. And what that does is it helps to fight against free radical damage. And being in a sunny location or a city like LA, where free radical damage comes from the environment, pollution, um, just sunlight in general, um, this really helps to protect that area. I also, yeah, I was using them first initially for my surgical patients and they loved it so much. I then decided to make that the first product. Wow. It's so yeah. funny you say that because if you were to ask me, like, I'm, I'm a confident person. I love myself, but I have this, like, I'm like, I feel like I have bags under my eyes. And when I smile, I get, it's exactly that. And I'm a 20 something and I get these like mm-hmm. little crow's feet. I too have tried eye masks and it's hard to know if they work or if they don't. And you don't really know who's behind it. So I think also having a doctor who like sees this stuff all day, every day, builds trust through social media. People know you, they trust you. It's kind of like the perfect blend of a product in this space because, you know, I I mean, I bought like random stuff on Amazon. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if it works. I would love to have someone who like really has tested it, who I think is smart, who posts content. It's a nice blend of all your things in one. Right. And what I actually did too, and this is the only eye mask out there right now um, with this high volume of patients is I had a clinical study performed by third parties. So I wasn't involved in it. So it's unbiased trial. Um, and over, um, there was a hundred participants. Um, it might've dropped to 94 for who completed the whole trial, but the 94 participants who completed the trial, we found that after seven days of use, um, like 97% saw an improvement in the under eye. Wow. And yeah, and so I really like to, I'm a very data-driven person. I really like to back up claims with science. And so I, I made sure to do this clinical study before we launched. I hadn't seen any other brand do that. I recently saw one, but I think there was only 30 participants. So, you know, I really tried to get a, a broad range of different age ranges, different skin types um, to really be able to make those claims. Yeah. So I'm really excited about the product. I'm so excited for you. And you've got all those patients right there in your in your office. So it's not hard, yeah. you know, to sign people up. <laughs> Can you give us a sneak peek if there's any other products on the horizon that maybe they're not in production now, but you're like, one day I want to make an X thing? Yeah, you know, I think there's two areas we're going to focus on next. And uh, one is going to be the neck. And then the other area is probably um, still around the eye area. So something that is more applicable, like a cream. But, you know, the neck after the eyes uh, would be the neck and the hands. People see a lot of aging, again, because the skin is thin. So I'm very excited for the upcoming products. I'm excited too. Well, (laughs) final question for you. We ask this to every guest as well. 
You've obviously shared lots of words of wisdom here, especially for our medical listeners. I'm so excited for them to listen to this, but also our all our 20-somethings. What is that one piece of advice that you would give to all 20-somethings, regardless of gender, regardless of career interest? What's that one piece of advice? Yeah, I would say, you know, go with your gut. You know, there's going to be a lot of decisions that you are going to have to make in your 20s, in your 30s, but and every decision feels like it's going to be the biggest decision you're going to make. But there really is no wrong decision. And so I think that it's important to listen to yourself. You know, you're going to get a lot of different people telling you to do different things, but at the end of the day, you have to do what feels right to you and no one knows yourself better than yourself. And so when you make that decision, it will be the right one. If you have to, you know, shift paths along the way, that's okay. And it's part of the journey. And I think it's, it helps to build and define who you are later in life. And you'll be happy those paths change or may not have changed, but it will all ultimately, it'll all be okay in the end. So. I love it. That's so good. I, I think especially as young people, we ignore our gut a lot because we think we don't know anything. But in reality, yes. like our gut is a lot smarter than we give it credit for. I think that's really true. Can you let everyone know where they can learn more about Naked Beauty and your practice if they happen to find themselves in Beverly Hills? Where can they find you and watch your content, of course, too? Yes. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram as well as TikTok. And my handle is MD. And if you're ever in Beverly Hills, I am located currently in Beverly Hills on 462 North Linden Drive. And Naked Beauty is currently online direct to consumer um, at nakedbeautymd.com. We are looking to launch it into um, retail soon though. So soon you will be able to find us. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Erica. And I hope everything went well with your sister for her step twos. We've got like 30 minutes until I get a phone call. So we'll manage. I'm sure she crushed it. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 